Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for June 14th, 2020. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. The title of his sermon today is Prayer in Community. I don't know how this has happened. I don't feel old enough for Amy and me to have been preaching in this pulpit for 20 years. I say that, and then sometimes I feel old enough that we have been preaching in this pulpit for 60 years. You know, that's the way it goes. It's hard to imagine, though, in seriousness, that we have been here for 20 years preaching in this pulpit. Amy and I never re-preach sermons um, we are lectionary preachers. That is, we use the prescribed text from the revised common lectionary Sunday after Sunday to preach something new. Um, but in the summer, each summer for 20 years, we have strayed from the lectionary, have chosen a series of some kind, and have preached a series in the summer. Uh, as I said, we never re-preach sermons, but in 2010, our 10th year of preaching, I announced that we would do a top 10. Over the last decade, we would look back and see if there were 10 sermons that we would be interested in re-preaching. It was an interesting discipline for us. I think we had some interesting response from you. And so we've been another decade. And so I announced that we would do another top 10. Uh, So Amy and I have spent some time in the last Uh, weeks looking back through a decade's worth of sermons. I actually announced this to our staff at the end of last summer. I prepare a year's worth of preaching themes, ideas together, and present them at the beginning of the fall. And so I'd announced that almost a year ago, and then a few weeks ago, as the nation um, erupted in protest, as the coronavirus continues uh, to, to decimate our country, I had some anxiety. I wonder, is it tone deaf with so much going on in our world to look back and preach an old sermon? I got worried about that. But as I looked at some of the sermons that I wanted to preach, I realized, wow, sadly, how little has changed in the last decade. With protests going on still, two weeks after the death of George Floyd, protest about racial injustice in this country. I looked back, and one of the sermons that I had, in, had already thought of and intended to preach, I didn't realize how appropriate it was, but it speaks exactly to this issue. In 2015, we were approaching a verdict in the trial of Randall Carrick, the Charlotte police officer who had killed Jonathan Farrell, an unarmed black man in our city. Um, I felt like I couldn't do a better job of finding something appropriate and relevant to today's issues than I had preached in 2015. As we've said this to other pastors, they've said, yeah, we all preach the same sermon just over and over and over. And so I hope as Amy and I re-preach 10 sermons this summer, you will listen for something new and realize that the gospel never gets old. In 2015, Amy and I were preaching sequentially through the book of Mark, 
we had been asked to participate in a commentary effort. Um, uh, Smith & Hellwes Publishers are publishing a commentary called a contextual commentary. They had asked 66 pastors to choose a book of the Bible and preach sequentially through that book. Those sermons would then be published as a commentary on that book of Scripture. Amy and I chose the book of Mark, and we started in the fall, and we spent about nine months preaching through the gospel of Mark. This is the last sermon in that series. It speaks to me, uh, again, of the power of Scripture. That text had been chosen long before that Sunday came up in 2015, obviously long before this Sunday has come up in 2020, um, and how the power of Scripture is always relevant to us. So we came to that day on August the 23rd, 2015. We come to this text again today in 2020, hoping that God will speak to us today. Mark chapter 16, the 19th verse and the 20th verse. Then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that accompanied it. I called this sermon the distilled result of confidence. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere. You have heard the ancient story. When Amy and I took our boys to Cuba for a family mission trip, I guess about 10 years ago now, at some point during those days, we found ourselves uncomfortably trying to explain subversion and politics subversion in the political frame of the gospel. Now, our Cuban pastor had commented on the communist spies in the churches. He told us that all Cuban pastors know that every congregation has a member of the party planted in the congregation whose job is just to listen and to report back if a pastor gets out of line, if the preaching becomes critical of government, or if preaching and congregational life begins to stir the crowd too much, the heart of the biblical witness, which leaders of governments know all too well, which a writer named Mark sought to identify in his political narrative of the story of Jesus, the heart of biblical witness is liberation. And freedom is a dangerous idea in Cuba. And in the United States, it becomes an even more dangerous commodity in the hands of the masses when they get a taste of that forbidden fruit, freedom. In communist societies, the gospel challenges the peace. In totalitarian regimes, the gospel invites revolution. In democracies, the gospel offers a critique of status quo. The former Brazilian Archbishop Dom Helder Camara knew the power of the gospel truth when he said simply, when I give food to feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. You know, been there, done that, folks. 
When I preach and ask why folks are poor and why our system is as it is, it's not uncommon at all that someone accuses me of being a socialist. When I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. Gospel truth, like the witness of prophetic wisdom from which it was born, is always political. Because no government has yet been born which offers the vision of biblical equality to the masses no government which grants liber the liberating hope to all its people. Even the best political strategies and governments turn in on themselves for the sake of institutional self-preservation. The Bible speaks of principalities and powers, and that reference is not to the devil and his minions waging spiritual warfare against the faithful. It is to something much more dangerous Principalities and powers are systems of all shapes and sizes, identified by many names, created by often well-intentioned human beings, which become evil by their blind force and devastating through their witless direction. This morning, the men's uh, Sunday school class that I meet with talked about systemic racism. You don't have to be a card-carrying member of the KKK to be a part of systems, the system of our government, the systems in our government, which are racist, systemic government, principalities and powers. Simply put, governments are afraid of preachers because the gospel has always been a political narrative. Now, please understand that theology is no threat to any government. Abstract philosophical speculation about God is powerless. But gospel truth will always be a threat to empire. Mark's gospel is a political narrative. It records the witness of Jesus who offered a different way and a different power. It threatened even mighty Rome. The good news he came to preach offered security beyond the forces of national pride and military might. His gospel offered hope to transform this hopeless world, and he offered peace beyond that Pax Romana, which was actually just a well-crafted marketing program before there was such a thing. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome was a narrative that ruled the Western world for several centuries. It sought to appease the masses by manipulating their fears and offering peace through strength. Have you heard that expression somewhere? You could not write a more ironic story if you try. Rome's power was the diametric opposite of the good news that Jesus came offering to the poor and the powerless. Jesus' message was love. Rome's message was strength. And Rome used its strength to crush him, to stamp out his heresy, to quell his dangerous sedition. The Roman cross, which made manifest the power and fear of empire like no other grotesque implement of death ever has, their cross put an end to Jesus. 
But less than 300 years later, the troops of Constantine marched into battle with their banners of war emblazoned with crosses. Roman shields were marked with the sign of Jesus' cross as a totem, the cross offered to add divine protection to the swords of military strength. Gone the call to self-sacrifice. Gone any challenge to the empire. Do you understand that irony? The Gospel of Mark says the cross is the world's greatest power, but it is the world's greatest power when we learn to die. When we learn to die for one another, just like Jesus died for us, when we learn to side with the poor as Jesus did, when we learn to resist empire just as Jesus did. But Constantine subverted the subversive power of the cross. Subversion means to undermine the power and authority of an established system or institution. Constantine subverted the subversive power of the cross, inverting Christ's subversive love, making his cross an almost omnipotent symbol of national and military might. You can hear this in the militant way too many Christians speak of their faith today using military imagery to speak of battles and victories of all kinds, to bring it closer to home, maybe uncomfortably so, you can hear it in American partisan politics, where the American flag and the cross are inextricably bound together in much American Christianity. The power of love has become the love of power. The cross has come to mean domination, not self-sacrifice. Thousands of people lived for centuries under a myth called the Pax Romana, and that so-called peace of Rome came to subvert the power of the cross. Rome, under their militant leader Constantine, transformed Jesus' death into a dominant theology of strength and right. Today, if you're willing to hear the challenge of Mark's gospel, we will have to acknowledge that we have extended the subversion of the cross. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a message about sacrificial living, which gives priority to the poor and voice to the voiceless, has been co-opted. Instead of the Pax Romana, we have our own myths. Call them what you will. American exceptionalism, the American dream, law and order. Our narratives are no less myths of empire, no less the justifications of dominance and power. It is ironic that we have so badly missed the point that Mark wanted to make so clear. Dominance and power are not the ways of Jesus. This is not what good news is about. The way of Rome was symbolized so well by their cross, that tool of fear and oppression of the masses, the poor and the needy. 
the cross as a tool of capital punishment, execution by the empire perfectly summarizes the demonic abuse of power to dehumanize, torture, subdue. But Jesus chose his path, accepted a fate on that cross, and hanging there, dying, he transformed the message. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Only she who will lose her life for the gospel shall find it. Take up your cross and follow. Hanging there, dying as a state criminal, Jesus transformed the meaning of the cross The subversion of state power comes by self-sacrifice. But within 300 years, Constantine, the leader of the world's greatest empire of that day, used the cross to silence the subversive message of Jesus. No challenge to empire could be found. Constantine chose the cross as a symbol of his empire, and we have been confused by his subversion of the cross ever since. Today's text is the very end of Mark's gospel. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that accompanied it. So three questions for us today. First, is it good news? Does our message really sound like good news to the community, to the masses, to the poor and oppressed? We live in affluence and comfort. Where's the good news to the masses? Maybe in our community, the good news needs to afflict the comfortable more than to comfort the afflicted. And maybe we need to be reminded of the subversive nature of the gospel, which will always challenge the comfortable. Second, is the Lord working with us? Now, I take that to mean, is Jesus still challenging us, or have we just turned our faith into a set of religious beliefs? Is the Lord working with you? Is the Lord working on you? Finally, if we claim it to be good news, are there any signs that will accompany it? Are we offering challenge to empire, to the dominant narrative of our culture? Or have we, just like Constantine, subverted a subversive message using a comfortable Christianity a civil religion to justify our way of life, the rightness of our assumptions, a dominant, dominating system that still oppresses the poor and silences the minority voice. In his powerful commentary, Ched Myers ends his commentary by speaking of Jesus' call, which, and I quote, comes to us too, as a challenge to turn from our privilege and to restore justice. Too much of the Christian church today has turned into its privilege, not away from it. And if that is the case, we cannot begin to restore justice. 
Myers says the restoration of justice comes by beginning where Mark begins, and that is with repentance, and then by learning to resist the dominant narrative. Repentance, resistance. Repentance of sin, Ched Meyer says, must be understood not in our modern sense, just as personal angst or guilt. He says it must be understood in the Hebrew sense as an admission of our solidarity with historical injustice. Those are powerful words. Our solidarity with historical injustice. I wrote those words five years ago but they could not be any more appropriate to the controversy that is brewing in our streets, our churches, our capital today. Historical injustice. And I ended this sermon five years ago by saying this. Several weeks ago, I said then, in response to a recent episodes which have raised the specter of racial unrest in our country, Amy called our congregation just to show up. It's what we can do. It's what we should do. That week, five years ago, we were anticipating a verdict in the trial of Randall Carrick, the officer who killed Jonathan Farrell, an unarmed black man whose car broke down and he walked to a nearby house to seek assistance. The trial was being watched around the country because of its affinity to other similar episodes, episodes that have brought unrest and violence in other cities. A group of concerned clergy had strategized a plan to invite members of the faith community to gather in five geographically diverse locations. This was to be a means of dispersing crowds, but providing safe and open space for expressions of whatever feelings arose in the aftermath of whatever verdict would be announced. We spread the word through social media that we would gather on the night a verdict was announced. We would speak we would listen, we would sit together. We would pray for the families of Jonathan Farrell and Randall Carrick and for the city of Charlotte and for our nation. And the day came, the time came, and no one showed up. So we left one church and went to another, and no one was there either. We ended up in one downtown congregation sitting amidst about 50 participants and Amy and I sat near the back and we listened. It was a poignant lesson for me, a lesson in repentance and resistance. I wish America could have heard what we heard that night. I wish all of you could have been there to hear without judgment the honest words, especially of several black mothers who spoke. One talked about stereotypes and assumptions, and she said, why can't you see the potential in my child that I see? Another said, as a mother, I'm angry, afraid. I'm just glad my son made it to his 18th birthday. Another talked about having what she called the black mama blues, and I don't know how to grieve. And another said, black rage is the result of white anxiety. We did not create racism in America, but, we are actually, but are we actually doing anything to dismantle it? Most of us are not most of the time. And by sitting idly by, we bolster the assumptions, the systems that strengthen the dominant system. 
systemic racism. Simply acknowledging our privilege and our culpability in a system that breeds fear and still believes in redemptive violence, that would be a great place to start. Repentance, the admission of our solidarity with historical injustice. And then resistance. Too much of white America cannot stand with our brothers and sisters of color, resisting the systems that continue to oppress and alienate because most of us simply do not know their stories or we choose not to believe them. The pain and anxiety of mothers in Charlotte, North Carolina was evident on that Friday night five years ago. It is being echoed across the country today. I needed to sit with them on that night and just hear their pain. And I need to learn to resist, in some ways, the systems that yield that pain. What can I do? What can you do? What can we do? What needs to be done? What training could be changed in law enforcement? What policies could be modified? I don't know, but I know where I need to be standing if I am going to side with Jesus and that is with the poor and the outcast and the oppressed and the fearful, and it is against a system that brings them down. I need to be standing there, however feeble my efforts may be. So the final word of Mark's gospel is this. The good news, according to Jesus, is not a belief to affirm in your head. It is a life to live day by day. It is repentance every day. It is the realization that it is so easy to align ourselves with historical injustice, with the systems that want to maintain the status quo at the expense of just peace and those who need it most. It is resistance in whatever way we can, but resistance which begins by simple awareness that those systems exist and that the pain they cause is real day by day. The great African-American scholar Howard Thurman called persistence the distilled result of confidence. Are we persistent day by day by day? The bulletin cover on uh, five years ago when I preached this sermon included a poem about a nun walking through the snow to evening prayers. On the way, she stops and bends down and balls up a handful of snow and throws it at a nearby tree, testing her aim, and then she cleans off her hands and she continues to the station of her evening prayers. And I said, like the nun who picks up a handful of snow, playfully testing her aim as she walks across the yard to evening prayers, the gospel must become that routine. It must become habit for us. Just what we do in a life lived on the way to prayer in community. Community of faith called Park Road Baptist Church. We are called to repentance and resistance. The persistence of a life lived for one another just as Jesus taught us. May it be so.
We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace to you.